Section six of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Cole. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part one. Book the first. Chapter three. Alone. The child remained motionless on the rock, with his eyes fixed. No calling out, no appeal. Though this was unexpected by him, he spoke not a word. The same silence reigned in the vessel. No cry from the child to the men, no farewell from the men to the child. There was on both sides a mute acceptance of the widening distance between them. It was like a separation of ghosts on the banks of the Styx. The child, as if nailed to the rock, which the high tide was beginning to bathe, watched the departing bark. It seemed as if he realized his position. What did he realize? Darkness. A moment later the hooker gained the neck of the crook and entered it. Against the clear sky the masthead was visible rising above the split blocks between which the strait wound as between two walls. The truck wandered to the summit of the rocks and appeared to run into them. Then it was seen no more. All was over. The bark had gained the sea. The child watched its disappearance. He was astounded but dreamy. His stupefaction was complicated by a sense of the dark reality of existence. It seemed as if there were experience in this dawning being. Did he, perchance, already exercise judgment? Experience coming too early constructs sometimes, in the obscure depths of a child's mind, some dangerous balance, we know not what, in which the poor little soul weighs God. Feeling himself innocent, he yielded. There was no complaint. The irreproachable does not reproach. His rough expulsion drew from him no sign. He suffered a sort of internal stiffening. The child did not bow under this sudden blow of fate, which seemed to put an end to his existence ere it had well begun. He received the thunderstroke standing. It would have been evident to any one who could have seen his astonishment unmixed with dejection, that in the group which abandoned him there was nothing which loved him, nothing which he loved. Brooding, he forgot the cold. Suddenly the wave wetted his feet, the tide was flowing, a gust passed through his hair, the north wind was rising. He shivered. There came over him from head to foot the shudder of awakening. He cast his eyes about him. He was alone. Up to this day there had never existed for him any other men than those who were now in the hooker. Those men had just stolen away. Let us add what seems a strange thing to state. Those men, the only ones he knew, were unknown to him. He could not have said who they were. His childhood had been passed among them without his having the consciousness of being of them. He was in juxtaposition to them, nothing more. He had just been forgotten by them.
he had no money about him, no shoes to his feet, scarcely a garment to his body, not even a piece of bread in his pocket. It was winter. It was night. It would be necessary to walk several leagues before a human habitation could be reached. He did not know where he was. He knew nothing, unless it was that those who had come with him to the brink of the sea had gone away without him. He felt himself put outside the pale of life. He felt that man failed him. He was ten years old. The child was in a desert between depths where he saw the night rising and depths where he heard the waves murmur. He stretched his thin little arms and yawned. Then suddenly, as one who makes up his mind, bold and throwing off his numbness, with the agility of a squirrel or perhaps of an acrobat, he turned his back on the creek and set himself to climb up the cliff. He escalated the path left it, returned to it, quick and venturous. He was hurrying landward, just as though he had a destination marked out. Nevertheless he was going nowhere. He hastened without an object, a fugitive before fate. To climb is the function of a man, to clamber is that of an animal. He did both. As the slopes of Portland face southward, there was scarcely any snow on the path. The intensity of cold had, however, frozen that snow into dust very troublesome to the walker. The child freed himself of it. His man's jacket, which was too big for him, complicated matters and got in his way. Now and then, on an overhanging crag or in a declivity, he came upon a little ice which caused him to slip down. Then, after hanging some moments over the precipice, he would catch hold of a dry branch or projecting stone. Once he came on a vein of slate, which suddenly gave way under him, letting him down with it. Crumbling slate is treacherous. For some seconds the child slid like a tile on a roof. He rolled to the extreme edge of the decline. A tuft of grass which he clutched at the right moment saved him. He was as mute in sight of the abyss as he had been in sight of the men. He gathered himself up and reascended silently. The slope was steep, so he had to tack in ascending. The precipice grew in the darkness, the vertical rock had no ending. It receded before the child in the distance of its height. As the child ascended, so seemed the summit to ascend. While he clambered, he looked up at the dark entablature, placed like a barrier between heaven and him. At last he reached the top. He jumped on the level ground, or rather landed, for he rose from the precipice. Scarcely was he on the cliff when he began to shiver. He felt in his face the bite of the night, the north wind. The bitter northwester was blowing. He tightened his rough sailor's jacket about his chest. It was a good coat, called in ship language a sou'wester, because that sort of stuff allows little of the southwesterly rain to penetrate. The child, having gained the tableland, stopped, placed his feet firmly on the frozen ground, and looked about him. 
Behind him was the sea, in front the land above the sky, but a sky without stars, an opaque mist masked the zenith. On reaching the summit of the rocky wall he found himself turned towards the land, and looked at it attentively. It lay before him as far as the skyline, flat, frozen, and covered with snow. Some tufts of heather shivered in the wind. No roads were visible. Nothing, not even a shepherd's cot. Here and there pale spiral vortices might be seen, which were whirls of fine snow, snatched from the ground by the wind and blown away. Successive undulations of ground become suddenly misty, roll themselves into the horizon. The great dull plains were lost under the white fog. Deep silence. It spread like infinity, and was hush as the tomb. The child turned again towards the sea. The sea, like the land, was white, the one with snow, the other with foam. There is nothing so melancholy as the light produced by this double whiteness. Certain lights of night are very clearly cut in their hardness. The sea was like steel, the cliff like ebony. From the height where the child was, the Bay of Portland appeared almost like a geographical map, pale in a semicircle of hills. There was something dreamlike in that nocturnal landscape, a wan disk belted by a dark crescent. The moon sometimes had a similar appearance. From cape to cape along the whole coast, not a single spark indicating a hearth with a fire, not a lighted window, not an inhabited house was to be seen. As in heaven, so on earth, no light. Not a lamp below, not a star above. Here and there came sudden risings in the great expanse of waters in the gulf, as the wind disarranged and wrinkled the vast sheet. The hooker was still visible in the bay as she fled. It was a black triangle gliding over the livid waters. Far away, the waste of water stirred confusedly in the ominous clear, obscure of immensity. The matutina was making quick way. She seemed to grow smaller every minute. Nothing appears so rapid as the flight of a vessel melting into the distance of ocean. Suddenly she lit the lantern at her prow. Probably the darkness falling round her made those on board uneasy and the pilot thought it necessary to throw light on the waves. This luminous point, a spark seen from afar, clung like a corpse-light to the high and long black form. You would have said it was a shroud raised up and moving in the middle of the sea, under which some one wandered with a star in his hand. A storm threatened in the air. The child took no account of it, but a sailor would have trembled. It was that moment of preliminary anxiety, when it seems as though the elements are changing into persons, and one is about to witness the mysterious transfiguration of the wind into the wind-god. The sea becomes ocean. Its power reveals itself as will. That which one takes for a thing is a soul. It will become visible, hence the terror. The soul of man fears to be thus confronted with the soul of nature. Chaos was about to appear, the wind rolling back the fog and making a stage of the clouds behind, 
set the scene for that fearful drama of wave and winter which is called a snowstorm. Vessels putting back hove in sight. For some minutes past the roads had no longer been deserted. Every instant troubled barks hastening towards an anchorage appeared from behind the capes. Some were doubling Portland Bill, the other St. Albans Head. From afar ships were running in. It was a race for refuge. Southwards the darkness thickened, and clouds full of night bordered on the sea. The weight of the tempest hanging overhead made a dreary lull on the waves. It certainly was no time to sail, yet the hooker had sailed. She had made the south of the Cape. She was already out of the Gulf and in the open sea. Suddenly there came a gust of wind. The Matutina, which was still clearly in sight, made all sail, as if resolved to profit by the hurricane. It was the Nor'wester, a wind sullen and angry. Its weight was felt instantly. The hooker, caught broadside on, staggered, but recovering held her course to sea. This indicated a flight rather than a voyage, less fear of sea than of land, and greater heed of pursuit from man than from wind. The hooker, passing through every degree of diminution, sank into the horizon. The little star which she carried into shadow paled. More and more the hooker became amalgamated with the night, then disappeared. This time for good and all. At least the child seemed to understand it so. He ceased to look at the sea. His eyes turned back upon the plains, the waste, the hills, towards the space where it might not be impossible to meet something living. Into this unknown he set out. End of section 6 Recording by David Cole, Medway, Massachusetts